I was desperate. I was trying to find my way. I had bounced around doing lots of different things in lots of different cities, all the while thinking that I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. And I was uh, very close to bankruptcy when I turned 30. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Steve Charles. Steve serves on the board of trustees at Temple University, and he spent years providing scholarships and other financial resources to expand opportunities at Temple. His commitment to Temple is obvious as soon as you walk into the elaborate, cutting-edge structure that is the Charles Library, which is named after Steve himself. But before entering the world of philanthropy, Steve struggled, hustled, bounced around, and spent years trying to find the business plan that would transform him into a successful entrepreneur. His answer came in the form of Imix Group, a company Steve co-founded that distributes tech products to different facets of the federal government. That idea took years to develop, along with a lot of twists and turns. Steve's story is now on Philly Who. If you've walked through the newly completed Charles Library on Temple University's campus, you've probably been swept off your feet in one way or another. Maybe you found yourself staring at the gaping floor-to-ceiling windows, or maybe your jaw dropped when you noticed BookBot, the underground automated system that retrieves your library books for you. If anything, the new library is ultra-modern. It's a far cry away from Steve's own childhood, which was rooted deeply in Lancaster County. I was raised on a farm, Mennonite parents in the middle of a bunch of Mennonite farmers. We had tens of thousands of chickens that laid eggs. So you have to feed them and gather up the eggs and then run them through the machine to clean them up and put them in the right sizes. And I can remember pushing the cart full of eggs from one building back to where we processed them, looking out on the fields and imagining farming lots more land Mm. with the uh, most modern tractor. And for some reason, I was raised with a, a mindset toward constant change. And I think that happened early because my father was always talking about how farming was when he was growing up, and then how quickly things mechanized and the economies of scale changed. And so we were just constantly talking about those concepts, even on our little patch of ground. I think it got my mind open to the idea that things are always changing and you never know what's going to work out. Yeah. He grew up in a very structured kind of farming way in which there was tobacco for cash and then there were all the various animals and it was all very harmonious. But when um, they decided to stop farming tobacco for cash and had to uh, become a little more capital intensive and a little more specialized, it was a real change. And I'm not sure he ever really got over that, but for me, it just became how to think about everything. Like many parents, Steve's mother and father had a few expectations for their son. They envisioned Steve as a future minister, but he had different plans. He began experimenting with photography. He spent hours developing film in a darkroom. 
He was working on commercial shoots. But after a couple years... My mother was, was saying, you know, we have to get you off to college. And their choice was Eastern Mennonite over in Harrisonburg, Virginia, because, again, they still really had it in their heads that I was going to be a church leader. Did you at any point have that in your head? Not really. Yeah. In fact, when I got to Eastern Mennonite and started studying, you know, all the different religions and also was taking accounting and business classes, I was also starting to think about how to promote businesses. By the second semester in Harrisonburg, I had wandered across town to James Madison University and took a class in, in mass media communication. Uh, having grown up without television, I felt like I needed a little cultural shot in the arm. So. Yeah. And the professor there told me, actually the chair of the department told me that I should go back to Pennsylvania and go to Temple University. Why did he say that? He had seen my commercial photography and an industrial 16-millimeter film that I had done, was editing even while I was down in Harrisonburg with my former boss. And he was like, you, you just go to Temple. <laughs> You're a Pennsylvania boy, and you just start in their communication school, and you'll be just fine. And the Mennonites are very closely related to the, the Brethren in Christ. And they had a row of townhomes on North Broad, right opposite Temple. And so I went in there and kind of... I kind of Mennonited my way in. You know, you always know somebody who knows somebody. It turned out that their maintenance man was, had thrown out his back and the place was dirty and things needed to be fixed. So I just got busy. You helped them out. I helped them out. They gave me an apartment and I, was, I ate my food there. Basically, it was a full-time job along with uh, running across Broad Street to uh, take classes. I'm a real fan of staying broad, if that's your interest, because yeah. you can always go narrow and deep later. I learned that you can get through your 20s that way, just with lots of hustle and just study and being quick. The idea of kind of being able to do everything, uh, what we used to back in Lancaster County refer to as the jack of all trades, but master of none is okay through your 20s. But by the time I hit my 30s, people were like, well, what do you really know about? And where are you really going? Yeah. Employers want you to supervise others and actually uh, show some professional leadership. It's time to start focusing. I just know that I had bounced around doing lots of different things in lots of different cities, yeah. all the while thinking that I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. And I was... Uh, very close to bankruptcy yeah. when I turned 30. Why did you think you'd be a millionaire when you became 30? Because I was successful at things that always led to something else. Was there then a point where you had to change your approach because you were broke? So keep in mind the technology era that we were in. Computers were still at the IBM 286, 386 level. Video was not digital. It was still analog. But digital could be pressed on what were called laser video disks. Mm. They were just optical disks, yeah. but they were the size of like a record. Wow. You know, really shiny, like a, like a DVD is today. Except a giant DVD. Like a huge giant DVD. <laughs> yeah. And thicker too. Yeah. And so you could encode video on these platters and access it interactively like you can a hard drive. Mm. This was all very new. This was um, this was the early 80s. 
I was running around selling programs for these things and then got involved in producing some and just got in over my head. I was working at, at a company up in, uh, in the Boston area and the Boston Celtics were like going great guns and everybody was at the game and I was needing to like do storyboards for the next day. And I was just, I had gotten myself into needing to do things that I really didn't have the skills for. I just. So then how did you get out of that scenario? I left. You left what? Well, I took off with a friend and um, started something else in Chicago, providing computer services that See, were a little simpler. You, but you skipped town. Yeah. <laughs> he called me up and we were talking and I explained the situation and he said, Steve, I'm going to come see you tomorrow. And then we just got in his car and we drove back to D.C. And that was the day the Challenger exploded. And then we drove all night to Chicago. My goodness. Are you thinking, I'm just going to go start a new life in Chicago? At that point, I was kind of listening to him because he like had this idea of really focusing on, on business information technology. And we were selling some gear and performing some integration services, and he was pretty good at that. Again, it was a failure because we hadn't really defined precisely what we were going to do. We were running around doing a little bit of everything, kind of like we had all done through our 20s. That's not how you build a business. Building a business requires real focus and performing something that uh, you do over and over so that you can teach others to do it over and over so that you can actually create some scale and make some money at it. And um, I hadn't learned that yet. And as a result, I turned 30 in Chicago with not much of a winter coat. So I went home. I actually went back home to the farm. What did you do when you first got back there? I volunteered at Habitat for Humanity because a friend of mine that I knew was in charge of international programs there. And he's like, you just come down. I have a house. Just just come down and we'll do stuff and it'll be good. So I went down there and um, it was kind of like circling back to the very beginning of my career. I worked in the dark room. Oh, you were back in photography. Yeah. And what was your outlook at that time? Um, so going through that time of not really knowing what would happen next. I just learned to just kind of put one foot in front of the other and um, do whatever needed to be done to be helpful with the mindset that eventually something would come along, but I just needed to like reset and really figure out what I was going to, what I really was going to do. And I think that it was that requirement to reset that actually made me open to, to really focusing in on something, just kind of recouping, just mentally, just helping out, processing, just getting my act together. So somewhere in one of the chicken houses, there was, a, there was an old Volkswagen Jetta diesel that didn't run. So I found a motor in a junkyard and got that thing going because I knew I was going to need transportation. Ooh. Got some money scraped together and, and uh, bought a couple of suits because I knew that I could get a job. And I knew I could probably get a job in um, the burgeoning industry of, of personal computers because I 
I had studied those in the process of doing all the interactive video. And so that's what I did. Did you immediately find a job there or was there a search involved? It wasn't long before I was out of the darkroom doing, yeah. doing media events and PR and stuff and was involved in some of these blitz builds and was rubbing shoulders with the Carters and that, and that whole team. And so I ended up with a book of early day advertising stuff that I had done back in Philadelphia before heading off to Washington and then stuff with the Carters in media relations. So I had a decent book for job fairs. Yeah. And so when I would show up and, and talk to these upstarting you know, computer companies, local area networking was huge then. Mm. Everybody wanted to talk to me. So that's how I got back in the business and how I got in the, into the business of information technology. Yeah. So I got this job with this local area networking computer reseller type company and was supporting their sales teams and doing marketing. But I was only there for a couple of days and they brought in these huge binders, stacks of them and put them on the desk and said, Steve, this is all your stuff now. Now, I'm like, what is this? Oh, these are our, these are our government contracts. Can't sell anything in this town without a contract. And I start reading this stuff. I swear to God, I would just fall asleep. <laughs> I bet. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. They said, don't worry, we have consultants. And so I would meet with the consultants and they could explain some things, but I realized there was so much to this. Yeah. And so I started hanging out at the consulting shop, reading their books. The updates to the rules are con continuous. Mm. And, and so I would kind of like go study there. And I started taking a class or two, American University, George Washington University, University of Virginia had an extension campus in Falls Church, Virginia. So I realized there was just no, there was just no way but to plunge in and study this. And I remember I was back in Lancaster and I had all these, this mountain of books, big thick books. And I was explaining to my father that I was taking these classes and you know, these are the rules and this is the book that explains the cost accounting and this is the book that explains. And he just looked at me and he said, so how long do you think it'll take before you're teaching other people how all this works. So I was like reading a lot of self-help kind of stuff and listening to, um, to audio programs. And there was one called Lead the Field, which sounded good to me, that I remember just listening to over and over. And one of the statements in it was about, if you spend five years really focused on something, practicing, living, studying, working, and you stay open and communicative with all the other people kind of in that endeavor. If you are truly diligent in five years, you actually can be perceived as a leader and be perceived as competent. The current instantiation of that idea actually is the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers. Yeah. He talks about the 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. That's five years. Wow. And so I just said, oh, I guess five years. And sure enough, in five years, I was working at that consulting firm and I was um, going out and explaining to clients how all this stuff worked from a, from a business perspective. Yeah. Now, anybody in that, in that scenario could have had the, the contracts plopped on their desk and they start reading it and fall asleep and then, oh my gosh, this is the worst and you know, do, just get by. But you decided to dive headfirst in, learn how it all works, study it, take classes on it. What about this? 
I was desperate. I, I, was, I was trying to find my way, uh, realizing that I needed to like know more about something than everybody else around me if I was going to be of value. The consulting firm went through some changes when one of the partners died, and I've, I felt like I could step up and play an ownership managerial role. And that's when I learned all about how equity and values of companies actually worked. It became obvious to me that I was just going to have to start something from scratch, but I wasn't quite ready to do that. I wasn't ready to go out and go head to head with them. So I was explaining that to a, a, who's actually a client, but also a friend. And he's like, Steve, you can just come over here. I'll give you a job tomorrow. And so I went to work for a software company, a very large software, well-run software company. And that's where I really learned how big companies, big software companies truly operate. My friend who brought me into that company uh, realized he wasn't going to make his number. He was the sales manager. He was like, we sold it all out this year. We're, and now they want to double my number. Hmm. There's no way yeah. I'm going to make my number, so I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> and he said, but you should stay. You stay here. A few weeks later, the new manager came in. He said, Steve, you got the territory that we just sold last year. There, there's, you're not going to be able to make your, your number. And so we talked about what I would do. And um, he said, but they can't fire you right away because they, they don't know. The new manager doesn't even know that. So you have about three months. And he said, and, and, and when they finally do let you go, you, you just bring your box down to my house and we'll talk about what to do next. And so I was, I was prepared to, you know, box up my stuff and leave at any, any point in time. But I learned an incredible amount about how publicly held software companies actually run. It sounds like you're starting to put the pieces together to build your own thing at this point. Right. Well, that's true. I did pack up my box and I did go see my uh, former manager who then became my business partner. Yeah. I just went to his house and we hung out and uh, he had ideas about what a business could look like in this space. And um, I had different ideas. And between the two of us, we put together a company that we called Imix Group. And the idea was to provide the right mix of services for each company, regardless of their stage. Yeah. yeah, that's when I really felt like I was actually doing it. Doing your thing. Yeah. I was about 40 then. Gotcha. Were there any unexpected surprises that entrepreneurship held for you? Or did it kind of, after spending this time learning about this particular area, learning about business on the farm and advertising, or did it feel like all these things had finally climaxed into where you were supposed to be? Well, <laughs> well, this was um, trying to start a business with my personal computer and uh, each of us working out of our houses. So it really wasn't much of a business when you think about it that way, right? Yeah. But um, he said, I need to get out of my house. The kids are driving me crazy. And um, I was happy to do that too. So we uh, rented a couple of offices and, and there were surprises for both of us. He, he had come from 
big business, you know, big four accounting and consulting and large companies, EDS, IBM, and so on. Mm -hmm. I didn't come from there. I came from figure it out, do it yourself. Yeah. So to me, it was perfectly natural that when the computer went dead, I would just rip the motherboard out and go replace it and be back up. And he was like, he was beside himself. <laughs> this is not, this is not a business. I'm like, it's a computer and it's not working and it will be by tonight. Yeah. You know, he told that story, but, and I like to tell it too, because it really explains how having multiple people in a company from the beginning can really be an asset. Yeah. Everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different skill set. His skill set was seeing how something could be replicated and turned into a process, which I was really weak on that. Mm. I was about being able to do everything myself. And he was all about getting others to do it and scaling it. Yeah. As a result of those years though, of we sold the company 18 years to the day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's so clean. That's such a clean break. Like, it wasn't planned. Yeah. <laughs> oddly, so oddly satisfying. <laughs> so I'm operating a startup podcasting company here and you're looking at the company. How do I find that person? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't even know. Yeah. And then what kind of business relationship? So in my case, I said, you know, I know I can carry my weight, but I don't... I don't need to be 51, but I'm not going to take less than 50. And I know everyone advises against 50-50. Yeah. And I know he was continuously concerned about, what if there's a deadlock? I'm like, we'll, we'll just figure it out. Yeah. <clears throat> you stay in the room until it's not a deadlock. Yeah. Exactly. And so partnership very quickly gets to equity share. Yeah. And how are you going to actually build a business? Yeah. And is equity the important thing? Is it, are you really going to build something that someone else is going to want to buy? Yeah. Or is it really more about just building something that throws off cash that we can live on? Yeah. And now I'm totally off the rails because we're supposed to be talking about you. But, <laughs> but this to... is what I do with people. Yeah, yeah. One way to start thinking about this yeah. is imagine the end. Imagine creating an organization with all its pieces and parts. Yeah. And what would that look like? And people would say, how do you get along with blah, blah, blah? And I would say, well, we stay out of each other's hair. It's not, it's not hard since I don't have any, but the point is that you need partners who you don't really have to explain anything to almost yeah. because they know where the person's coming from and they don't always have to be, and, and everybody knows that that it makes no sense for two people to be doing the same thing anyway. MX Group stuck around. It's been active and functioning for more than 20 years, distributing products from clients like Cisco, Dell, and IBM. And then Steve turned back to the university, the community that changed his life as a young student from a Lancaster farm. Returning to Temple. Well, as you can imagine, I wasn't all that proud of my accomplishments through my 20s and, and 30s. And so I made no effort to get on anybody's mailing list. And they made no effort to try to get me on their mailing list. But when our company started rising in the rankings, Temple reached out from the school that I had graduated from 
And like like a good development person, uh, Ashley Lomery like reached out to me and was just really easygoing on the telephone. And uh, and so I got to know what the school was doing, got to know the new dean, became enamored with Dean Boardman's vision for journalism in the digital age. Of course, I wanted to talk about that because yeah. I was also kind of disturbed with how journalism was faring. Turns out he's part of a solutions journalism network that involves a lot of leading thinkers in journalism and practitioners. The idea that we can train our journalists to do rigorous research, data-driven storytelling that uh, actually points to things that are actually working. And hopefully in the next generation, some of those folks might be in editors' jobs and might be challenging their reporters to to uh, not just report on travesties, but also dig up stories where things are working. And that's the chair I endowed at, at Temple. That got me on the radar of Temple University's, you know, trustee level people and um, ultimately uh, landed me on that board. They're doing projects and stories and the, the, uh, the chair is actually doing a program at, at Carver, the yeah, Philadelphia. Yeah. I started by providing scholarships. That was my entry level yeah. kind of donation to 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 the Klein School. The gateway. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a way of helping people immediately. It's something that universities desperately need now because we're finding that enrollments, you know, we're having to compete for students. And and yeah. for the next 10 years, it's going to be a real challenge for universities. And the universities that can afford to provide a little extra aid to bring the to bring the students in that are a good fit for the university. They need that extra little bit of aid yeah. to get them across the finish line and, and get them enrolled. And so I really encourage people to get involved in providing scholarships in ways that will help help yeah. a school or university. Let's talk about the library. So Temple University has recently opened an absolutely stunning new library on main campus. And that library is named after you. What does that mean? I'm very proud of it. I, I hasten to add that the decision to build that kind of a facility on Temple's campus actually was made by people who actually aren't even in the current, it was happened a, almost a generation ago, probably about six years ago. It took a long time getting out of the ground. It was this complex thing. And so it was almost like when I got on the board, it was almost kind of becoming a joke. And yet, at a Christmas party, I started talking to the dean of the libraries. And, you know, librarians are all about information technology. Yeah. It's what it is, right? So he and I hit it off. We, we, go, we went back through every generation of computers that there was and medium and media. And the great thing about Joe is that he's thinking about the future, right? And I do that too. So it was, it was a nonstop conversation. And the development guy at Temple, Jim Cauley, walked by and uh, and he named off the names of the other libraries, Sullivan, Paley, Charles, he said. And I just laughed. And But I tell you, I couldn't get it out of my head because once I knew the mission from the dean, I bought into that before I really understood how stunning the building itself was going to be. So it was over the holiday season and it was after the holidays, I was like, 
this is going to be so cool. Somebody else is going to do this. <laughs> so I just hurried up and did it. <laughs> what was the vision of the library that you bought into? The idea of it being the public square for the university. Universities have a real challenge because their schools almost operate so independently like silos. Yeah. And yet we all know that that's not the real world. That library represents the possibility for transformation. It represents kind of the platform for transformation. The innovation economy, the creative class, this idea of the new localism, that's bottom up because the old rickety structures that will probably pass in another generation just are not serving. And so to me, the library symbolizes all of that. So not only can it show that it can be done, but then hopefully it'll continue to happen inside its doors. It's already happening. Yeah. There's like 35,000 people going in and out of that place a day. <laughs> what would you say is a common misconception about you? Since I sold my company and I'm out doing things with all different, I haven't had a 360. I don't know. I'm not quite sure how people perceive me. <laughs> yeah. But I do know one thing. People think that I'm incredibly busy because they hear about all the different things. But I can assure you, I take time to sleep and I, yeah. I do crash. I'm not always on. Yeah. My brain needs time to, to process. Yeah. And now I'm, I can do that in a much more relaxed way. Yeah. How do you know when you found the thing to devote five years to? As I recall in the Outliers book, yeah. the examples were people who just kind of fell into it and did it because it's what they enjoyed. Yeah. Whether it was Bill Gates or the, the Beatles or whatever, they were just doing what they enjoyed that, that was working for them. And I really believe that's key. Last question. If you could get one message to every Philadelphian, kind of maybe, maybe it's in a, sim a similar vein. One message to every Philadelphian, be it a billboard, a tweet, a plane in the sky, something that every Philadelphian could receive and ponder. What would you say? So I always write the headline last. I have to like write the copy first. Yeah, yeah. You know? I so love that. You work your way to it. And actually, that to me, it's often more interesting to hear how they got, how yeah. you get to where you're going than what, what you're actually going to say. I, I think of Philadelphia as having good bones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, like its own row homes. Yeah. And there's diversity it still has its neighborhoods and there's um it has so much and yet when i talk to like leaders in different groups i see all this segmentation and inability to like cut across certain like circles someone here mentioned said you know it's all these little it's all these little groups of people that don't like the groups are all really kind of uh segmented yeah. or separate right and so I would like the billboard to say, good bones, more connective tissue needed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a reveal. That's great. Did you just come up with that like on, on the fly? I actually did. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is, that's wonderful. Let's, uh, let's get that billboard up. <laughs> <laughs> if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here's a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons. Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. 
If you'd like to join them in supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Philly Who. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio, powered by CIC, and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Colleen Schmidlin, editing and mixing by Max Graham, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time. <laughs>